Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, mental health, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, life as a blind person, both in Canada and Latin America, finding refuge in music and real world strategies for coping with mental illness and or disability, and how you can help a loved one who is facing these type of challenges as well. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About How Music Soothes My Soul. Hey, my guest in this episode is Heather Hutchinson. She's an Amazon bestselling author and award-winning singer-songwriter with four albums released to date. She's been blind since birth and having struggled with mental illness from a young age, she is passionate about educating people on disability and mental health through her music and her writing. She's a frequent guest on national television and radio programs and renowned podcast, including this one, across the globe, speaking and singing to share her message of hope to those who are struggling. Heather's an avid traveler and has spent time living and teaching English in Latin America and now lives in the West Coast of Canada. She's there with her partner, Jordan, and their cat, Maya. She has an incredible journey of fortitude, perseverance, never giving up, and creating a positive outlook on life, which we are now going to have a great conversation about. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. You know, I, uh, you have a, an amazing journey, and I think that uh, where you're at now in life and what you've accomplished and what you've come through um, is something that uh, you should be very, very proud of because you've allowed other people to move forward and past obstacles in their life to bring about a positive aspect. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I like to kind of unfold um, life as it goes, so to speak, and uh, kind of talk about you, see how you got where you got, where, uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Edmonton, which is pretty far north in Canada. It's like the biggest city, like northern city. So it's really cold, a lot of snow, a lot of freezing temperatures, not too much sunlight in the, in the winter, but I live in a warmer place now. So <laughs> I'm happy about that. In warmer, warmer place, well, see, coming from, from down here in the United States, coming from Arizona, I mean, I used to live in Colorado, but, and that was cold. But when you yeah. think of Canada and you see everything on the, on the, on TV, it's, it looks like it's all covered in snow. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of Canada kind of makes fun of us because they say we're not truly Canadian because we don't get it. You know, we get a little bit of snow here and everything shuts down. Nobody can drive or anything. All the fun stuff. Yeah. They forget, yeah. forget about all the fun stuff. Uh, yeah. Do you have any have any brothers, sisters? I have one brother. He's older. Did you uh, did you go to university? Did you go to any kind of uh, uh, advanced education? I did. Yeah, I studied psychology for a couple of years, and then I changed my major to music, which wasn't you know the best life decision because one of those careers pays a little bit better than the other one. But it's been fun. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, I can relate to you in that regard. My daughter, as we talked about before we started this, is an actor and 
Um, yeah, I, I understand that from a creative perspective. <laughs> it's it's um, how many how many how much work did you get? Well, I'm doing pretty good, you know, doing pretty good. Yeah, I can make rent this month. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost there, almost. Yeah. Um, so you uh, you obviously, if you change to music, uh, you have a passion for music. Um, when did that start? I think I've always had a passion for music. Like it's it's just something I've carried with me forever. I can't think of like a moment where I really knew where it started. I remember being like a toddler, barely being able to walk, walk and carrying this heavy tape recorder around with me everywhere so I could write songs and make up stories and things like that. So it was always a creative outlet for me when I started taking it more seriously was my early teens. And my first album came out when I was 16. So I was fortunate to, to get to experience that pretty young. Now, do you, I know you like music singing. I, I, I've listened to some of your songs, uh, of which everybody I recommend to when they will give you the website, um, to go and listen to her songs and buy her music. They, some profound, uh, lyrics and some great, uh, uh, music in, in, all in all. Uh, when you write this music and you sing this music, uh, do you play any instruments? Yeah, I play piano and guitar. I find that I usually write on piano because it's kind of my first instrument after the voice. Now, if I if I can ask, um, I know you were born blind, right? Yes. Is it difficult to learn something like the piano um, from being blind, or do you think it would be easier because you're not uh, stifled by having to to look at the keys, for example? You know, I don't. I don't know that it's easier or harder. I think it's just different. I think there are trade-offs um, to being able to see and look at the at the keys and read music, you know, while you're playing, because obviously the Braille music exists, but you can't read it while you're playing. Um, but then there's also the advantage, you know, we're maybe more accustomed to listening to things and picking things up by ear. So I, I kind of think the two things sort of balance out. From that perspective, yeah, I would guess, you know, it's, I tried to learn piano one time and that didn't work. Um, I, oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm very uncoordinated trying to figure out which keys to press and which uh, which uh, notes were where on the piano. And um, I said, the heck with this and went to a guitar. <laughs> okay. So you, you, you find guitar a little bit easier. Uh, yes. But my mother yeah. played the organ. And I, so I should have been a little more because it's a little closer to a piano. But then... My aunt played piano, and every time she'd play the piano, I think I'd want to try it. And I could play chopstick. That's about <laughs> that's about the extent of my piano music. Yeah, I kind of feel like, and I don't know that there's actually, you know, any basis for this, but I kind of feel like the piano is maybe easier to start, but harder to get good at than the yeah. guitar. I, I, I don't would, know. I, yeah. I, from my perspective, I just couldn't coordinate my fingers quite right but it, it would just be more easy with the guitar so i kind of stuck with that and but now if you ask me i probably couldn't play a note <laughs> no you <laughs> didn't keep up on it no no other life got into the middle of everything yeah well it's like riding a bike i'm sure you'd pick it up again so what uh if you don't mind me asking uh, we're talking about uh, where you've come from and, and and how uh you manage your life what is life really like as a blind person i mean especially in, in Canada. I know we can compare that you traveled the country. So what's life like being blind? You know, it's, 
It's a hard question to answer because it's kind of like, well, what's life like being sighted? I think we all have such different experiences. But then I also think that we're a lot more alike than we are different. So, you know, I think the hardest parts of being blind are society's perceptions of it um, because we do get the weird looks out in public. People say, know some unkind things sometimes they don't even mean for them to be unkind but they are or what happens a lot to me is I'll be out with friends or with my partner and people will actually address those people instead of speaking to me directly because they think that I am somehow incapable of speaking to them I'm not really sure um so it's definitely the people aspect of it I think a lot of people think oh if I went blind like I'd miss the sunsets and my loved ones faces and things like that that's not really something I miss because I was born blind and so that's kind of like this abstract thing for me but what I do wish for is that people would be a little bit more open and understanding and just treat everybody the same I, I agree with that. I mean, it, I've had uh, a, f- a friend of mine that is blind and, you know, he kind of uh, resonates with that 100%. And, you know, it's, uh, people forget sometimes just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you're not a human being. And, yeah. you know, everything about you is still a human being. And, you know, you, um, I've got rheumatoid arthritis really bad. So there are things that I can't do with my hands that I used to be able to do. and um, even in restaurants, they treat me or they look at my wife and say, would, would you like me to hand this to you? Or would you like me to do this for you? And Mm. she's going, ask him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what people always say with me too. Like she can speak for herself. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, what would she like to eat? Like I get that in restaurants often. What does she want? And they're like, I don't know ask her <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it just kind of i'm sure that i'm sure as a child it probably gave you some uh some uh challenges as you were growing up and so forth and in regard to uh, dealing with that did you um always go to what kind of schooling did you go to yeah i always went to public i was mainstreamed from from preschool so you know that was there was positives and negatives with that the positives were i think some of the um, schools that more specify in disabilities, you know, there are some schools for the blind and things like that. I kind of feel that they don't really prepare you for the real world and you are kind of a little bit insulated. Um, Whereas for me, you know, I did everything everyone else did, good and bad. Um, And the difficulty for me was that I didn't, it was a struggle to get textbooks in Braille. It was a struggle to get um, the same, you know, documents and worksheets at the same time as, as my classmates. So it was hard to keep up sometimes, not because I couldn't keep up, but because I wasn't getting the information. Yeah, it would be some challenges. Um, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. As you as you progressed in life, did that create any other challenges um, from a mental health perspective, do you think? For sure. I think it can be kind of isolating for me. You know, my dad left when I was little and had cancer as well. So I was pretty anxious from a young age about like losing people and things like that and having routines interrupted. 
And it was a challenge to go out because I, I realized from a really young age that people, even adults, were uncomfortable around me. So I, I kind of developed this like perfectionism where I didn't want to leave my house in case I did something that that wasn't perfect. You know, I would try to, when I was really young, I would read all my books and I would try to study the body language of the characters in the books to try and like pass myself off as sighted, which never obviously worked. And so it just, it felt like I was constantly failing. And if I just did a little bit better then nobody would know, then people would treat me the same as they treated everybody else. Yeah, that's kind of unfortunate that you have to have to struggle with those kind of challenges based upon um, just a disability like that. And, you know, at times I keep, I refer to it as a disability and I really shouldn't because it 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 is not really a disability, is it? I mean, you are functioning like a regular person anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think I don't really, you know, get too caught up in like the PC words for what things are. Um, I kind of hate like when people say differently abled. I don't know why that drives me crazy. Yeah, um, so yeah, disabled is like totally fine. You know, I, I think we get hung up on words when what we really should be getting hung up on is our actions and the way we treat people. So if somebody uses a word with me that's, you know, not PC, but treats me like a normal human being, that is like far more preferable than somebody who uses all the right words, but treats me like a China doll or something like that. Yeah, I agree with that. And you, um, you traveled to uh, Latin America. Uh, yes. did, you, did you do that for schooling or did you have just for preference? How'd you end up in Latin America? So I kind of grew up surrounded by as much as possible the Latin American community in Canada and huge, you know, generalizations here. But I always found them more open and accepting of me as just me. And they would ask few question, fewer questions than Canadians, but they would just kind of observe more to you know, learn about me, about what I could do, about what I might need help with, things like that. And they would just offer help and it, they just never made a big deal out of anything. So when I got the opportunity to travel, for me, I wanted to be immersed in that inclusion and to be different, I think, for a different reason, you know, instead of being the blind girl all the time, be the, the girl from Canada. I love that. I think that uh, I think there are certain areas in the world that uh, treat people uh, with people like people. You know, yeah, yeah, and, and, I and no agree. Different. You know, the, the, and that's why you should be one hundred percent. I know that you took refuge in your music and so forth. So, um, when you when did you first notice that you uh, were having some depression and some mental health challenges that? Uh, at, uh, I know that you were uh, hospitalized for psychiatric care at one time, but do, when did you first recognize some mental health challenges? Yeah, it's been a struggle my whole life. Um, I noticed pretty early on that I was really anxious all the time and I would get sent home from school because I would be sick all the time from anxiety. And at that time, the pediatrician was just kind of like, oh, she's an anxious kid, she'll grow out of it which I hope is changing because it's really unfortunate because, you know, as with most diseases, the quicker you catch them, the easier they're going to be to treat. So the depression, I would say I started noticing, I don't know, probably about 
10 or 11. And then it was really in full swing by my early teens um, because I got bullied a lot in school. And and just the anxiety made it so that I didn't want to do this anymore. And, you know, I just wanted to stop feeling how I was feeling. What put you into psychiatric care? So I've struggled with major depressive episodes for most of my life. And I entered into one probably about a year before the pandemic that almost put me in hospital, but we were able to, with my doctor, he adjusted my meds, made sure that I was getting enough outpatient psych supports, things like that. But then when the pandemic hit, it was kind of, you know, a free for all. Nobody knew what was going on. My doctors and therapists stopped seeing people in person, so they didn't really see the physical signs that I was declining. I think I just wasn't far enough into recovery that I could deal with it on my own. And as well with the pandemic, my anxiety has created this need to always be in control. And I felt like things were really out of control. And the only thing that I could control was how and when I was going to die. Now, does that put you, and I want to, I want to ask if on two different reasons. One, obviously, as we talked about, I'm a retired police sergeant and I recognize um, that statement as uh, possibly on the brink of the dark side uh, towards suicide. Did you consider yes. suicide? Yes, I had, you know, my whole, basically what happened was I had everything I took care of, all my, you know, everything that I had to do, my will and all that kind of stuff made, you know, my quote unquote perfect plan. Um, but before I did that, I was kind of like, you know what, I'm going to go to the hospital. Um, not because I want to get better because I really didn't at the time. Although in rest, retrospect, of course, there must have been like a tiny part of me that still wanted to, or I wouldn't have bothered, but it was more, I was going seeking absolution so that when I was gone, my family and friends would be like, well, she tried. Um, obviously it didn't work out that way because I ended up being hospitalized, um, as an, as a, uh, involuntary patient under the mental health act so basically that meant that i'm sure you know being a police officer but basically i couldn't leave without a doctor's permission and i couldn't refuse any treatment now this happened in canada correct yes yeah in in the united states we have most states i can't say all of them but most states have a 72-hour cycle which um is the same same type of um, hold that they had on you. Uh, sometimes it runs a little bit longer depending upon evaluations. Uh, what was it like to be in a psychiatric facility like that? Did I mean, did that help you? Or do you feel that it uh, created more challenges for you? You know, it was actually one of the hardest things I've ever been through, but it was also one of the most positive things. Um, I don't think that there would be any chance that I would still be here if that ER doctor hadn't, you know, taken the time to fill out all those forms to get me um, admitted. And, you know, because it, it is quite a bit of work. You're essentially taking somebody's right to freedom or like freedom of movement away. So there is a lot that goes into that. Um, it was hard. You know, people always ask, is it like what we hear or what we see in the movies and yes and no. I mean, there is drama that happens for sure on the ward. Um, 
but really it's just it's kind of like a therapy boot camp you get um you know therapy multiple times probably they would break it down into tiny little sessions so you you might get like 15 or 20 therapy sessions with the psych nurses a day um plus whatever you're getting with the psychiatrist on rounds so mm. you know it's it's really intensive and I think that's definitely what somebody in my situation needed. You know, I wasn't really learning things that I didn't know, but I needed those constant reminders um, if I was going to have any hope of getting better. It's a positive thing. Um, you know, I've talked to people all over the world, actually, in, in regard to mental health and their challenges when they were put into a facility from the United Kingdom, British Columbia, um, not British Columbia, pardon me, we talked about that earlier, uh, in Great Britain and uh the differences across the the world basically it sounds like canada um treats people with mental health challenges pretty decently you think i think that's a hard one um i think there's definitely not enough support which is really unfortunate i think we're breaking down some of the stigma around mental health which is awesome but then people are reaching out for help and they're not getting that helps. So I think that we, there are definitely some changes that we need to make. I think it's a very reactionary system. I think most healthcare is, but I think in particular, mental health is extremely reactionary. I remember having a conversation with one of the psych nurses when I was in the hospital and she basically said, you know, it's a positive that you're, you've been here because now you'll be fast tracked for any outpatient psychiatric services that you might need in the future and I was just kind of like well you know what a shame that that it has to come to this and she was like I don't think there's a single psych nurse in here that wouldn't agree with that so yeah it's I think if you can get the supports you need they they are quite good at least they were at the hospital I was in but they're sadly lacking yeah I would, I would agree with that I've heard that before do you you guys are on a different healthcare system than we are here in the States. Uh, yes. I, I believe in um, the individuals that I recently spoke with from, uh, they call them mental heads. That's their podcast, mental heads. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of a blast to have a conversation with, with both of them, actually. Uh, the only issue we had was actually the internet kept messing up because they had, were having a rainstorm. Um, oh, <laughs> But they talked about extensively about both of them had been uh, yeah, within facilities there, and it took forever to even get in one in Great Britain. And then when they did, it was more of a take the pill, we'll talk to you tomorrow, take the pill, we'll talk to you tomorrow, and this kind of a thing. You couldn't get anything stronger than that or uh, more in-depth than that unless you had private insurance that you had purchased outside of that system. And um, the majority of people that were within that system, unfortunately, couldn't afford the outside yeah. assistance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the same thing here. I can't tell you how many people I heard on the phone who were in there trying to get on the waiting list for outpatient psych supports or inpatient psych supports that weren't in a hospital setting or housing. So they wouldn't end up back on the street because they were picked up by the police on the street and then brought in um, and just having absolutely no luck. And it's, it's heartbreaking because you know, it's just, it's a vicious circle and they're just going to end up, they'll let them out and they're just going to end up back there because 
they haven't been able to find the supports that they need to even give them a hope of succeeding. And they don't have the money to go out and hire a private psychologist or go to one of these private rehab groups for, you know, mental health or addictions, things like that. Um, so it it's really heartbreaking to hear those people's stories and we need to do better. I, I agree with that. Even here in the States, it's the same thing. It, you know, it, it's, and when I say this, my, my, both my parents were alcoholics. So from a perspective as an individual that grew up with alcoholics, um, it's, it's, they accept alcoholism. Like if somebody has to go into rehab for alcohol or something a lot easier than they are drugs, a lot easier uh, accepted than uh, somebody with mental health challenges says I need to take a mental health week or I need to go into a facility for some mental health challenges. They put a stigma upon mental health as if it's something that's very, very negative. And in reality, all of us at one form, one time or another have experienced uh, mental health challenges and whether it be Absolutely. depression or anxiety, uh, you know, anything along that line. Sometimes if it, obviously not everybody has schizophrenia or um, HD, 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 you know, things like this. Not everybody is physically diagnosed with that or has that, but we all go through depression. We all go through anxiety. We all go through issues in our life where we're angry and can stay angry for quite some time. P dealing with death, dealing with life in general, we have bouts of that. And it should be recognized a little bit better, I think, across the world, um, especially in the United States and in Canada and, and Great Britain for sure. But um, I agree with you. It needs to be more mainstream and uh, easier to get into being treated than putting a stigma behind it. Definitely, yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. How do you know, when you started um, writing music and, and uh, playing music, what, how'd you get into that? Well, yeah, I know you said you grew up kind of doing that. And when did you really want to be a songwriter and, a, and a, a musician? Hey, just a real quick reminder. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for being a part of the One More Thing Before You Go family. Please remember to subscribe and or follow us. We would greatly appreciate it. We do have an app that's available for you for free. You'll find it in the App Store or on Google Play. It is compliments of Superpaths, our sponsor. Anything that you want to do with your business to take it to the next level, have an entertainment or an information hub in the palm of your hand, it's Superpaths. It will give you the unique opportunity for everything. One more thing before you go. Please take the time to support us by subscribing, following, and visiting our unique merchandise store at BeforeYouGoPodcast.shop. You'll find that link to the store in our website. It is BeforeYouGoPodcast.shop. You can find our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. And one more thing, BeforeYouGo.com. You will find links to your favorite platform to listen to the show, as well as the show notes for today's episode and contact information for our guest. And we appreciate you. Thank you for supporting and listening to us each and every week. So I think it was actually my mental health challenges that pushed me in that way and just feeling isolated from my peers in my early teens because I was experiencing a lot of bullying. And so I would sit down at the piano and spend hours sorting through my thoughts and writing songs. And it was super cathartic. And it, it kind of helped me to make sense of some really complicated emotions that I was feeling, get them out. And then I could almost see them clearer than just like these crazy thoughts in my head. 
um, how I really got involved. I ended up um, in a, a regional talent competition for one of actually the first song I ever wrote that I've ever shared with the public. Um, and one of the judges on the panel for that competition uh, for the finals ended up being a producer and he came up to me backstage and he was like, you know, I really loved your song. It would be great to, if we could talk about recording and doing work together. And I was flattered. I didn't really think it would happen. Like just kind of one of those things that people say, but three weeks later we were in the recording studio starting work on my first album. So it was really crazy because it was like going from the high school band room to this professional studio setting with professional music musicians in the span of three weeks now how did that make you feel i mean that that's got to be an exhilarating feeling yeah yeah it was super special when i think back on i i don't know if i would have made it through my teen years without having that um because my producer were actually still in contact he's a great friend um just really surrounded me by, you know, we were talking earlier about how people in Latin America just tend to be maybe more nonchalant and treat people like people. And I've always kind of found that with musicians too. So my producer really surrounded me with these positive people who who took the time with me and just really um, wanted to see me succeed. And to them, I was just, I wasn't the blind girl. I was just this girl that loved music. Also, like a Ray Charles and Ronnie Millsap, and um, yeah. oh, I can't remember the other guy. Stevie Wonder. Stevie um, Wonder, thank you. And I actually was, I actually did security for each one of those people when I was still on the job. And oh uh, no way! Yeah, it was pretty cool. Very, very cool, actually. And um, they, it, you'd ask them what they want. They said, "No, got it covered." It was cool. Yeah. And and yep. brilliant brilliant on stage it was like one of the best i in fact i i unfortunately got too involved in the concert you know and not really <laughs> as much as my job <laughs> caught myself Oops. getting into the music instead of looking around to make sure uh, but i'm retired yeah. now so i can say that it's okay <laughs> i love rachel like i loved the movie when it came out because i feel like so often hollywood portrays us as you know people with disabilities as these perfect little angels who never do anything wrong and it's just not really accurate so it was really nice to see somebody who was actually like kind of a bad boy get some some mainstream media i like absolutely that. absolutely and and the guy that played uh jamie fox um uh, uh, did a brilliant job yeah playing yeah, him it was i a mean 100 did a brilliant job playing him um i know his uh he's got a it's not really his father because his father had left him, but the guy that helped raise him and uh, treated him like his own kid we were friends with. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he did. Uh, but Jamie Foxx did a great job with that. It was it was really nice. Yeah. And again, it showed the light that it showed the real life. It, it, it wasn't yeah. uh, sugar-coated in any way. This is really what happened. This is what took place. This is how it was. Had the same kind of problem, same kind of issue, same kind of treatment like a person that... It just can't see. That's all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I loved, like, I didn't really feel like his blindness was the focus of the movie. And I really loved that. So do you think your, your um, songwriting helped you through some of the mental health challenges and your depression and your anxiety? Definitely. I don't know what I would have done instead of songwriting. It, it really 
saved me and honestly continues to even with my latest album that just came out after writing the book I was kind of like you know before I went into the hospital I swore off music I was just done with the whole thing I was basically done with you know anything in my life that brought me joy or whatever um but once I started getting a little bit healthier coming out the other side I got pushed kind of by a friend um, who's a producer he wanted to produce an album and I was kind of like oh you know sure I'll we can record something but just covers because I don't write songs anymore (laughs) which um, yeah of course I had to eat my words on that one because as soon as I started I couldn't stop and it it just makes so much sense because you know the hospitalization and everything I talk about in the book was such a profound part of my life that you know I've spent my whole life translating events into my um, in my life into music and it would just make logical sense that that would be the next step that I would take that experience and translate it into music as well. That's a good thing. I mean, look at Taylor Swift. She's made a multi-million dollar career telling her life story. Yeah. Every relationship, you know, she keeps saying, no, 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 no. But you know, it's every relationship she ever had is written in song. Yeah. <laughs> every breakup, yeah. every, every, every bad guy, we'll, we'll say it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Everyone's always like, oh, did you write a song about me? It's like, I no, don't know. No. Did I? I don't, no. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's, that's the, that's the easy way to do it. So do you, yeah, um, exactly. You use you your music helps you through some of your uh, your health mental health challenges and so forth. Do you have any other techniques that you use that uh, uh, to help you work through your bouts of depression or bouts of anxiety if you still have them? Yeah, yeah, I definitely still have them. I suspect they will be with me forever. I think it's an illness that I think a lot of people think that you just wake up one morning and it's gone and mental health is a journey it's not really a destination so it definitely is something that I think I will be dealing with for the rest of my life but I have better tools now I think to deal with it Um, I think it's really important to be very aware of the signs that we are spiraling because if we catch them quickly enough, we might be able to do something about them. If we wait until we're so far down in that darkness that we can't help ourselves, that's when we really get into problems. So definitely recognizing those things. I actually have something I written, I'd written out with um, one of my therapists, a safety plan that basically details how I know that I'm spiraling and what I'm going to do about it. Um, you know, from from little things to the biggest things. Um, so that's really helpful, just even having that in writing to know, okay, this is what I do when this happens and this is what I can do to fix it. Um, I think, you know, so many people say, oh, you just go for a walk or something like that. Um, once you get really far down, there's no walk in the world that's going to help you. But if you can do these things, if you can practice self-care techniques, before you get there, if you can practice, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, DBT, all the things that we learn in therapy or in the hospital are great tools if we can implement them 
fast enough. And I think that just comes with practice. It's like we talked about earlier, you can't just sit down at the piano and expect that you're going to play this, this perfect piece. And I think, you know, we're kind of a society of quick fixes. And when we try a technique that doesn't work, we try it once and we're like, oh, that didn't work. And we give up on it. But it's just like, it's like anything you have to mental health and mental well-being is something that you practice. And I need to practice every single day. Yeah, I think that it's mental health is, um, it has to be managed. Yes. It's, it's like any disease, chronic disease. I have rheumatoid arthritis, as I said, most of my listeners know, um, and the viewers know I have a rheumatoid arthritis. I have to manage that every day. It's not something that's going to go away. It's not something that um, I can magically wake. I wish we could all magically uh, yeah. press that button. <laughs> yeah, that'd be wonderful. But yeah, it's something that has to be managed every day and it has to be managed effectively with the right tools and techniques. And it sounds like you've got some tools and techniques in place that really can help somebody move forward. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's there's always a risk with everything. I'm not naive enough to think that I'm never going to get into trouble because I think as soon as I start thinking that way, that's when I'm going to get into trouble because yeah. I'm not taking it seriously anymore. Well, music, I'm sure music has helped you immensely and you've got a beautiful voice and your lyrics are great. Um, I think that uh, uh, that is a fantastic outlet. I I believe wholeheartedly in the creative arts in helping people work through um, challenges within their life, whether it be grief, uh, mental health, uh, anger, um, sadness, you name it. I believe that creative arts have the opportunity to help move people forward in a very positive way. It yeah. is, and, and throughout my podcast, I've talked about it before. So I've, I, um, I have a master of arts degree in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media and performance. And I uh, did a documentary that literally took the use of creative arts to help people uh, work through grief and the, getting to say what they didn't get to say before losing somebody. And we used uh, dance and we used music and we used um, art and we used drama and we used different scenarios to show people how they could utilize those tools within creative arts to help you work through. Those, yeah, yeah, those absolutely. It's it's super powerful. And that was actually something all of the above are techniques that they used in the hospital um, to try and help people on on their journey. So it's very powerful, I think, in numerous mental health settings and otherwise. Well, I'm glad you found music. That's a very good thing. And and again, um, it, it, it's four albums that you've recorded is an outstanding achievement. And uh, I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how to find you there too, because uh, I think they need to listen to your songs and you will soothe their soul. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's always the goal, you know, to put it out there and hope that it helps somebody, hope that it becomes bigger than just me. Well, absolutely. Well, one of the things that, that, that you also have done to help that move forward is uh, write a book. Yes. So what inspired you to write a book? So people have always kind of told me, oh, you should write a book. And I never really paid much attention because I had no idea what I would say. Um, but there was this one night that I was lying awake in the hospital. I'd been there for, for a bit by that point. They had transferred me from emergency psych into a more sort of long-term, not super long-term, but um, longer-term 
unit that they keep people on. It's still locked, but um, once people are a little bit more stabilized. So I was lying in bed one night there. I couldn't sleep. And the the medevac helicopter arrived with a critical patient. And as soon as they arrived, they called a code blue. And I was lying there in bed and I started thinking about this this patient's family and thinking, my God, they must be having one of the scariest nights that they will ever know. And then I started thinking about my own loved ones and thinking, how can I feel so much empathy for this person's loved ones while knowing the decision I want to make will devastate my own? And then I started thinking about the patient themselves and thinking, what a crazy juxtaposition. They're in here fighting to live and I'm in here fighting to die and one of us has a choice. And it was kind of like this this fork in the road, this moment of clarity that I knew I could keep on going how I was going and I would get out of the hospital at some point and then I would die or I could change the way I'd been living. I could tell my story in the hope that it might help somebody else who's going through something similar because lying in bed that night, the most painful part of what I was going through sincerely was imagining somebody else feeling that same pain. So if I could tell a story, write a book, write some songs to make somebody, you know, take a little bit of that pain away from somebody, then that would make the journey and that would make fighting to get better worthwhile. It's amazing. And it's, uh, you come up with the title, Holding On by Letting Go, a memoir. Yes. Um, can you help us understand how you come up with that title? How did you do that? Yeah, so it was actually one of my best friends was was the first person to read the book um, before, you know, it was first draft still. And I asked her, what what is the overarching theme to you as you read the book? And she said, surrender. And then I kind of thought about that and was like, yeah, I can see that. And I think that surrendering is a lot different than giving up. So I surrendered to the fact that I needed this this help and this support and that I couldn't do it alone and but I didn't give up so I held on by letting go of all of the the baggage that I had been carrying the fear of being hospitalized the fear of losing control because you're in the hospital you pretty much have given up all control <laughs> that you possibly had so just letting go of all of that to be able to hold on now, tell me a little bit more about the book. What's it about? I know it's a memoir, but let's tell our listeners. Yeah, so it basically goes through my whole life from when I was really young and my parents were discovering that I was blind and then I was kind of discovering it and discovering that the world was seeing me differently. And it goes up from there through through my education, through university and all that. Um, it talks about traveling and living in Latin America. And it basically sort of chronicles the journey of how I got to the point that I got to where I needed to be hospitalized. So that's the first half of the book. And then the second half really dives into what it was like to be hospitalized. It's it's almost kind of like a journal format um, of each day is sort of divided into its own chapter. And it really, you know, tries to break down 
the stigma around what it's like to be hospitalized for mental health, because I think there's a lot of people who could benefit who are so terrified of what goes on behind those locked doors because we don't know. And fear, you know, creates resistance and creates, you know, we fear what we don't understand. So if I could strip away some of that mystery and really explain to people what it's what it was like, I've had people, you know, tell me after they read it that they have since been hospitalized and they were really grateful to read it because they were so afraid before. That's an, I mean, and obviously it's an Amazon best-selling book, so you've had some great success with it. Uh, what was it like, uh, the challenges writing that? I mean, I, I'm, start, I'm running a book myself, so I know from awesome. certain perspectives, it's, it's not easy writing a book. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And memoir is really tricky. We talked earlier about how people are like, oh, is that song about me? And I think songwriting <laughs> yeah. is a little bit different. <laughs> Because you can be more ambiguous, you know, am I talking about you? Maybe, maybe not. But in a book, in a memoir, there's no getting around who you're talking about. And you're talking about people who are still living, people whose stories and lives have intersected with yours. And so you you definitely have to keep that in mind and be thoughtful and sensitive to that. So there was a, a lot of sleepless nights going, how is this person going to take this? Or have I been fair in my portrayal of this person and their actions? Um, so I, I think that was the biggest challenge for me was just not knowing how people were going to take it and, and trying to be fair to people because, you know, we all have our own struggles that influence how we treat other people. Right. That, I mean, that's always something that has to be taken into consideration. Did you have to change the names to protect the innocent? Yes. <laughs> yeah, all of the names are changed except for a couple of my friends and my partner who actually agreed, like, in writing that I could use their names. So, yeah, that that was always kind of, like, scary. I didn't want anybody to, to uh, come back and say that I'd been unfair to them or whatever. Well, I promised you I wasn't going to do the, the cop questioning. That was my only cop question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only one, just one, just one. That's all. Just the one. Seems fair. No, yeah. totally reasonable because it was something that I kind of obsessed over. How long did it take you to write the book? It was probably about from start to finish, editing and everything, 10 months, which is fairly quickly for a book. But I wanted to, it was really important for me to get it out while it was still kind of fresh in my mind, while we were still kind of reeling and still are from the effects of the pandemic and how that's affected mental health. So it was it was important to me to share my story um, fairly quickly. So it was a huge undertaking, especially editing and everything. Um, but it was it was something that I kind of lived and breathed for 10 months because I wanted it out there in the world. Do you have a lot of help? Um, quite a bit. Yeah, I had a couple people, my best friend and my partner read it. Um, some other authors I know read it. Then I hired an editor and she was awesome. But I remember getting the, the draft back and like wanting to cry because there was <laughs> red all over it. Um, so that took a while to, yeah, to go hurts. through all her changes. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It totally does. You're like, oh, you just like destroyed my baby. And then I had a uh, 
a proofreader at the end to check that everything I had done after the editor was good. So yeah, I definitely did have help from a number of places. Yeah, I hate the red pen. I hate hate the red pen. <laughs> it's it's so tri- sad. red pen triggers me. <laughs> right? I yeah. know. It's awful. Started in university. Every time I got the paperback, the wait a minute, I don't see any anaerobic on the first page. Then you turn the page and go, oh, geez. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. And now right. it's like the digital red pen, but it still hurts. Just yeah, as it still much. hurts. <laughs> it's like, are you sure this is mine? You 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 check mine, or does this belong to somebody else? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, editors are are good that way if you're releasing an independent book because they're like, well, I have no stake in it. If you don't want to change something, don't change it. But these are my opinion as as an impartial reader. Yeah, it's a good thing. Unlike a professor who's going, this is your grade. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of works. Um, Do you, uh, excuse me. Do you have any uh, like tips that you can uh, share with us in regard to uh, how how to best handle if we recognize that we're having some mental health challenges that you might share with us? Yeah, I think being open to that is super important. You know, we 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 tend to try and push things away until they're so bad that there's nothing we can do about it because I think that's how society has kind of trained us to be and unfortunately the medical system system for mental health really plays into that in that it is so reactionary but i think like we were talking about earlier you you have to stay on top of it and you can't wait until things get really bad thinking oh they'll they'll get better on their own you need to reach out and get that support while you still feel capable of reaching out to get support because unfortunately the very nature of some mental illnesses make it so that reaching out time and time again for help is next to impossible. So I think it's really important um, to have, to be open and honest with the people closest to you as well. Yes, it's definitely challenging for them, but they can help you to recognize the signs in yourself as well and sort of gently remind you of what you should be doing. They can also be huge supports in advocacy if you're not getting the mental health care that you need. So really, I think lean into your supports, know yourself and don't wait too long. Those are excellent kind of uh, tools that people can use to help uh, understand and uh, negotiate and manage some health options and make sure that they get the help that they need. Mental health, as we said earlier, is something that uh, unfortunately is uh, overlooked or suppressed or uh, people are afraid to speak up and say that I'm having some issues. So thank you for giving those tips. I believe that uh, would help people move forward in a good way, in a very positive way. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I I wish I had taken my own advice. (laughs) So hopefully other people will. Baby steps. Sometimes people have to yeah. just understand baby steps. You know, take the first step in you know in the right direction, and you know yeah. you might stumble along the way, but taking the first step is always a a, a positive thing. If you don't take the first step, you you're never going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and you know? sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But so long as you are moving forward, you know that's that's the important yeah, thing. Maybe. I think our best looks different for different people, especially like with social media. Now we see everybody's perfect lives and we think 
or even more isolated. And well, why isn't my life like that? Um, so I think that's kind of unfortunate um, and, and makes people less likely to reach out for help as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Let's, uh, let's talk about speaking of help. I think if people listen to some of your music, it's going to be help 100%. You uh, Tell me about your last album, your fourth album that you released. What's on it and what can we expect from it? So my fourth album, it's called If I Could, but my friends kind of joke that it should have been called Holding On By Letting Go, the musical, <laughs> because it really delves into what my books talk about. Um, it's super different from anything I've done before because I was actually writing the songs as we were in the studio recording them, which I've never done before. So usually I would sit down at the piano and write them but I was arranging them for, you know, a whole, um, all the instruments and everything like that while I was writing them. So it was a very different process for me. And I think that shows they're all a little bit different. Like we didn't really stick to even one genre so much. We didn't limit ourselves. Um, I just really wrote what I felt that I needed to say in the way that I felt I needed to say it. So I think there's hopefully a little bit of something on there for everyone stylistically and musically. Yeah, it just it comes from what I wish I could say to my former self, what I wish I could say to people who are struggling with their own mental health. Um, one of the songs on there is actually written basically from notes that I made while I was in the hospital. So there's there's a little bit of everything on there. I think the overarching theme is is um, realistic optimism. And I think personally, uh, I think that music coming from the heart and the soul like that resonates better with people anyway. We love to hear what comes from the heart and the soul because yeah. way we can feel it better. We can understand it better. We can resonate with it better. And um, that's always a good thing. And yeah, when you sing... You sing uh, both in English and in Spanish, which is very unique. Yes. Yeah. Which is very cool. That's very cool. Uh, and you have a, a jazz band? Yeah, we haven't played together in, in quite some time, just with the pandemic and my own struggles. And I've moved around a lot. Um, so I do miss playing jazz. It was it was very fun, and hopefully at some point we get to get back together and do that because jazz is it's really interesting. I feel like it challenges you in ways that maybe some other contemporary music doesn't, and it it has made me a way better musician. So I really enjoy it when I get the chance to play it with other people. I have to agree with you there. I love jazz. Jazz is like a as my go to music for relaxing and for enjoying and for taking a breath and you know yeah it, it's uh having a i i i drink chai tea lattes so awesome in common so i'll sit down have a nice chai tea latte listen to some jazz music put my feet up and just kind of relax right like what is more perfect than that <laughs> One, like 100 well doing it with my wife that would be more perfect she's uh, in true. the room so i have to say that out loud <laughs> <laughs> hopefully she can hear you uh it, that's funny. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, like how to find you, how to find your book and how to find your music. For sure. So 
you can go to my website at www.heather-hutchison.com, H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N. And on there, there are links to my book. You can find it on Amazon, Audible, Apple Books, basically anywhere you shop for books online, as well as links to my music. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you listen to music, really, YouTube. And there's also links to all my social media, my mailing list, and it would be great to um, stay in contact with anybody who's interested. And I'll make sure that all of those are on the show notes or in the show notes so that you can find her very easily. And be sure to go on there. You'll find a link on there for some uh, videos on there that uh, Heather has. And you can listen to her music on there as well. And uh, you get a nice taste of uh, this wonderful voice, this wonderful inspiration, this motivation uh, that can help you have a better day. Awesome. Heather, this is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of wisdom you can share with our listeners and our viewers? Yeah. So I'm not going to sit here and tell people that I have all the answers because I don't. Nobody does. And if they tell you that, I think they're lying. But what I can tell you for sure is that there will come a moment where you will stop and you'll feel such profound joy in that moment. And you'll think to yourself, I would have missed this if I made another, a different decision. So hold on for that moment because I promise you it is worth it very profound. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your journey with me and have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think that what you provide to the world is a very positive thing, both in your music and as well in, as in your writing and uh, your, your speaking, because you're sharing your journey with the world, allowing that opportunity for somebody to understand and empathize with the fact that they are not alone. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.